The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist, and I'm on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today I'm delighted to have a colleague with me, a fellow registered dietitian, Megan Lott. Megan is the Associate Policy Director for the Community Food Security Coalition. She works with the National Farm to School Network. She's based in Washington, D.C., and she is in the heart of food policy in the making. Megan, welcome. Thanks, Melinda. Tell me something. Uh, You're a registered dietitian. You have a master's in public health. How and why did you get into policy work? Well, there's the short version of the long story is when I was graduating undergrad, my undergrad degree is in nutrition and dietetics, and all of my fellow colleague students were going off to do dietetic internships. And I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew that I didn't want to spend most of my days just working in a hospital. That just wasn't for me. And so I took some time off and did an AmeriCorps program where I had the pleasure of working in a food bank in Los Angeles and really saw that there's a whole other side of being a dietitian and working with people that don't always have access to the most healthy, appropriate, affordable food, and that I could really begin to learn to use some of my skills to work with this population and, and make accessing these healthful foods that a lot of dietitians are recommending easier for them. So after that year in AmeriCorps, I um, moved to Washington, D.C. and got a job at a food bank here and really enjoyed my time working with senior citizens and helping them to access food. But I kept running into a lot of barriers, and I kept getting told no a lot, and I didn't like that. (laughs) And as I kept exploring further where the root of that no was coming from, it was always policy that was stopping me from what I wanted to do with my program. And so I had thought about going back to grad school for a while anyway, and um, decided that I really wanted to do public health and explore the policy side of public health and nutrition and and how we can use policy to better, to make these types of foods that we want people to be eating more accessible for all people, not just people who can afford them living in different communities where access is greater, but all people regardless of where they live and what their income level is. And I was very fortunate enough to, shortly after graduating from grad school, get hired by the Community Food Security Coalition and be able to start doing just that. You know, I couldn't agree with you more with regard to policy. You know, I always say everything boils down to policy at the end. And I, like you, I hate hearing no. Like, oh, no, our policies don't support dental care, for example, or our policies don't support uh, serving these kinds of foods in the hospital. And so I totally agree with you that, By changing the policy, I think that's really the heart or the root of where the problems are. So I commend you for going down that path. We need more of us, I think, working to make the policies better. Now, since you've been with the Community Food Security Coalition, you've been involved in several major policy issues, and I want to make sure we cover those and the ones that you feel most passionate about. And I know about 50% of your time has been spent with the National Farm to School Network, Tell me how policy plays into this. Sure. There's a lot of different ways that policy plays into the work I do at the National Farm to School Network. And I think one of the the big things 
that we've been working to do is to get more support in general for farm to school programs. And one way of doing that is to have policies that support getting healthy local food into school meals rather than policies that prevent it from happening. And up until the most recent farm bill in 2008, there was basically a it was prohibited for schools in their their bidding procedures, which they all have to write this very formal language to get food into their school meals, and they're required by federal law to go with the lowest bidder. And they were previously not allowed to put any sort of geographic preference on the food they were asking for. So, for example, they could say, we want apples, red apples that are this size, but they could never say, if they were in Washington State, they could never say, we want Washington State apples. And with the most recent Farm Bill, we were able to get some provisions changed that actually allow schools to now put a geographic preference in place. So that policy change was actually, it happened before I came on board, but it's a great example of how there have been policies in past that were almost prohibitive of farm-to-school programs moving forward. And so a lot of what I've been doing since coming on board is is taking that that great policy victory we had last time around and making sure it's implemented correctly and working to take it a step farther and also through the child nutrition reauthorization get Congress to put some federal money towards farm to school programs to actually help them help make it easier for schools across the country to get those programs started. So that's been a big a big piece of it and then also exploring similar policies on a state level and and working to get some of those cha- policies that may have been prohibitive changed. Let me ask you one question about this geographic preference. I think it's terrific, by the way. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I think it makes total sense in terms of getting fresher food into children's diets in school, as well as supporting the local farming economies. But is the geographic preference, is that still determined by cost? Like, does cost override? Like, you may want, I live in Missouri, I may want apples from Missouri to be served in my school, but, oh, sorry, they cost more. Yeah, it's a great question. We, um, so we're currently working with USDA on um, every, every new rule that comes around like that has to go through a federal rulemaking procedure. And so we have been working with them, advising them on, on implementing this correctly, and we're still waiting for them to release their final rule. So I can't answer that 100% yet because we don't know what's coming out. But the conversations we've had um, and the way that the, the geographic preference was meant to be interpreted is that if you, if a school says, I want Missouri apples, only growers from Missouri can respond with bids. And so they still do have to go with that lowest bid, but that all of those bids they're getting in should only be coming from Missouri growers. Oh, that's fantastic. Okay. Well, let's talk about child nutrition reauthorization. This was huge. I got emails from you regularly reminding mm-hmm. me to contact my <laughs> Congress people to support this legislation. What is it and why is it so important? Well, the child nutrition reauthorization comes up every five years. It's a great opportunity for Congress and the American public to have a say in how school meal programs are run. So the the programs that come up under the child nutrition reauthorization every five years to be reviewed and, and brought up to date are programs like the National School Lunch Program, the National School Breakfast Program, the School Milk Program, After School Meals, Basically, anything you can associate with feeding kids during the school day is a big part of that. And then also the 
Women, Infants, Children program comes up as well. And so it's, as you can imagine, a huge opportunity to affect programs that are serving millions of Americans. The National School Lunch Program alone serves 31 million children a day. Um, That's a pretty significant number. So it's a great opportunity to uh, really look at how these programs operate and what we're feeding our kids and make some major improvements. What about money? You know, that always turns out to be the bottom line. I think we can all come to the table and agree that we want better nutrition for kids, but then the question becomes, who's going to pay for it? Where is the money going to come from? So with regard to child nutrition reauthorization, did we see an increase in funding, and where did that money come from? Sure. Um, Money... Gosh, money has been the tough question no matter what issue you're talking about in Washington these days. The Congress did pass a while ago something called a federal pay-go rule, which means that they're not allowed to create new spending unless it's emergency spending. And the Child Nutrition Reauthorization does not qualify as emergency spending. So any new investments in these programs have to come from other programs. So we did see a a very historic investment of $4.5 billion into child nutrition reauthorization, um, and that's over the next 10 years. So it's a great, it's the first time this much money has been put into these programs in a very, very long time, and it was much needed money. But as I mentioned, that money had to come from somewhere else. And uh, where the money has come from has been quite controversial. Some of the money has come from about half of the money has come from uh, the SNAP education program, the SNAP program being the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, formerly known as Food Stamps. Mm-hmm. Um, so they've made some reforms and changes to the education program there. And the other half of the money has come from a cutoff of SNAP benefits that was made from the most recent stimulus package. In 2009, a family of four was given about an additional $60 a month to help So many more people were experiencing unemployment and we are dealing with a major economic crisis. They thought this would be a great way to both help these families in need and infuse more money into the economy. Mm -hmm. That funding was originally set to expire in 2013. And what they had to do in order to fund child nutrition reauthorization was roll that end date back from about March to September or from September to March, I'm sorry. (laughs) So um, it it ends about six months earlier than was expected. It's not a reduction in the base benefit that people receiving food stamps would be getting, but it's it's just a, a change in when that stimulus extra period was meant to expire. I'll bet there were lots of heated debates over this legislation. There sure were. And, I mean, I have to say, you know, we... The Community Food Security Coalition absolutely supported this legislation and supported the passage of it, but with a heavy heart. I'm, the one argument that kept coming up over and over again was that we're constantly robbing Peter to pay Paul. Exactly. And this was certainly seen as one of those circumstances. So it absolutely did, absolutely required a lot of a lot of heated debate, and I think that debate was very necessary. I think it's important for us to explore where we're taking money from to pay for other bills and ask, was this really the right place? Mm-hmm. And I don't think it was really the right place. Um, the Community Food Security Coalition has agreed to continue to work with our allies to try to get that funding replaced. 
um, because we're still in serious economic times with people who are still experiencing high rates of employment. We think that money is still needed. Um, but, you know, it came down to getting it done now and fixing the cut later or not getting it done at all. And and that seemed like the path that we had to take in order to move forward with this important piece of legislation. Hmm. If you're just joining us, we are speaking with Megan Lott. She has a master's in public health. She's a registered dietitian and the associate policy director for the Community Food Security Coalition, and she works on the National Farm to School Network. She is based in Washington, D.C., and we are talking about some of the most pressing and most up-to-date issues regarding policy and food and nutrition, and especially as these policies affect our more underserved neighbors and citizens. Megan, is there anything else that we should know about the Child Nutrition Reauthorization Act that I may have not asked that you would like our listeners to know? Are there any action steps that we need to take at this point to be good food citizens? Sure. I think there are a few things that are really important to know. Just that we, one being that we made some really significant improvements in this bill to school lunches and school meals that will be served to millions of kids around the country. Some of those, including the first time uh, national nutrition standards have been updated in more than 30 years, which is pretty significant. Another being that this bill for the, or this law now for the first time gives the Secretary of Agriculture authority to regulate all foods sold on school campuses throughout the school day. So we won't longer, any longer have to worry about vending machines competing with the healthier school food options, as well as having federal funding to really enhance farm-to-school efforts. There are a number of programs also out there, or changes in the programs to help increase access, including nationwide expansion of the after-school meals program and making it easier for kids to enroll in the program and streamlining how these programs operate so that we make sure we're not spending unnecessarily unnecessary dollars on administration mm-hmm. or some other big improvements. And so, you know, at this time, there aren't a lot of action steps to move forward. There will be over the coming months, especially as the Department of Agriculture goes into some of those federal rulemaking processes, as I mentioned earlier. We will absolutely have plenty of action steps for for folks out there to take and to help make sure that these programs are implemented as we intended them to be. And I know the Community Food Security Coalition listserv, and we'll, we'll make sure our listeners have access to that on the KOPN website, but that's a really great one-stop place to find out about a lot of legislation that we're going to be talking about in the future here. I have to ask you, you mentioned the vending machines. Does this legislation remove vending machines or control what's able to be sold in vending machines in schools? That's a great question. It does not remove vending machines from schools. It does change some of what will be sold in the vending machines. So rather than a child being able to go purchase a can of soda during the school day, the options might be bottled water, 100% fruit juice, more more healthful options that we hope will assist in the, in the child's learning as opposed to distract from it. Oh, I'm, sure, also I'm may, sure that was another another fight too, right? Yes, it, it it can be. <laughs> There's been a lot of conversations about, oh, no, this bill will remove vending machines or get rid of bake sales completely, and the bill won't do either of those things. It will just regulate what types of foods can be sold. Um, the last thing we want is a child not eating the this healthy apple that we've fought to get into that meal because they're eating a chocolate cupcake instead. Exactly. Well, these are all positive changes, and I'm so glad that you're at the helm and working to make them better. 
Okay. Anything else on child nutrition reauthorization? I think I think we've covered we've a lot covered of the basics. That I, if you do want more information, there are several great websites to go to, including ours. So. Okay. In addition to the Community Food Security Coalition, which do you recommend? Uh, some of the the really good ones for especially um, increased access provisions. The Food Research and Action Center um, has stayed up to pretty on top of these provisions and and what actions will be needed. And their website is www.fracfrac.org. I agree. That that's a wonderful site. Yeah. What about the National Farm to School Coalition? Yes, and thank you. The National Farm to School Network has a great website that will, of course, continue to stay on top of this as well, and that is just farmtoschool.org. Great. Okay, and I'll make sure we have those links also on our website, our station website. I recently interviewed Jan Poppendick, who wrote a book called Free for All, Mm -hmm. and it had to do with providing free school meals for children. So there's no... There's no division among socio-demographic groups or socioeconomic groups within the school, and all children receive free food, basically. Was there any discussion about moving towards that kind of system? You know, there not there was there was some discussion about it, but not what I would call extremely serious conversation at, at this point in time, and a lot of a lot of the reasons for that is because of the cost factor and being at a time where we are examining every bit of spending that is being put out there, that was not a cost that Congress, whether we disagree or agree, right. <laughs> felt that they could fund. Mm-hmm. So um, there was some exploring the concept, and I do believe Jan had come to D.C. to speak with legislators about the topic on more than one occasion. Mm-hmm. I I hope that someday we will get there, but this time around it was not a very palatable topic for a lot of Congress. I thought it was interesting, you know, you had mentioned administrative costs for Mm -hmm. so many of these programs, and one of the arguments that she made was that when we have these multi-tiered systems of free or reduced-price lunches, that those actually include more administrative costs than we've maybe looked at seriously in the past, which is why I asked that. I thought, mm-hmm. you know, how far up the river did we have we really looked at the cost and benefits of all of these programs? Mm-hmm. I can't imagine investing in anything more important than children's health, and I'm sure you agree with me on that. Yes, I do. Uh, Megan, I ha- all right, let's move on to the Farm Bill, because I know that this has been a topic of many discussions recently. I know you have a a meeting once a month where you bring together food nutrition people and policy people, and we talk about some of the most important policy issues that we're going to be dealing with in the next few months. And the Farm Bill has been a very important topic for years now. Do you want to talk a little bit about what we hope to see in 2012? Sure. I think with these new elections <laughs> that we had in November, we saw a lot of shifts in leadership, especially in the House of Representatives, shifting to Republican leadership. And so if you had asked me this question on what I had hoped to see in 2012 back in September or October, I might have had a different answer. Mm-hmm. Um, at this point, we will have you know, a Republican-led House and a Democratic-led Senate. It will be really interesting to see what we're able to get to get done Regardless, the Farm Bill is coming up in 2012, and as you mentioned, and I think at this point with 
a lot of the conversations that have already been happening with incoming Republican leadership in the House about reducing the federal budget and the federal deficit and, and looking for ways to cut spending that we're really going to be spending a lot of our energy protecting existing programs from some pretty potentially severe cuts. So I, I think there are still hopes for being able to get some new things into the Farm Bill. One thing that we've heard several times is they're going to really be looking at what spending is already in the Farm Bill and how they can reorganize that mm-hmm. to make it more effective. We just don't know what that's going to look like yet. And with the new incoming chair of the committee, I would argue to say that it's not necessarily going to be protecting community food systems and our related priorities, and probably going to be more aligned with conventional agriculture. Mm -hmm. And perhaps protecting subsidies. Yes. Mm -hmm. So for consumers who may not know, you know, I don't even like to call the farm bill the farm bill. I like to call it at least the food and farm bill, if not the food bill, because it really affects so much of what we eat. I think there's probably a lot of misunderstanding about what the farm bill really covers in terms of funding and regulating. And really, so much of the farm bill isn't about agriculture per se or even subsidies. It's more about basic feeding programs. Is that right? Yeah, about 70%. I might be a little off in my number there, but about 70% of spending for the farm bill is for uh, the the SNAP, the uh, Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, as I mentioned, formerly called food stamps. Right. And so, a very that is actually the largest what they call title of the farm bill all around that program. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating, isn't it? You wouldn't think that would be the case. It, it is fascinating, but I think it goes to show that that is a, a program that Congress sees as a priority and that really needs to be there to help feed people and give them resources for those who don't always have resources. Mm -hmm. Well, we have just a few minutes left, so I want to give you an opportunity to talk about anything about the Farm Bill or any other policy issues that you discussed. I know the Community Food Security Coalition just had a big meeting in New Orleans this past fall. Were there any highlights from that meeting or any other particulars about the Farm Bill that you think our listeners should be paying very close attention to and possibly calling their representatives? Sure. Our meeting in New Orleans, we do an annual meeting every year in October or November around that time. And um, it was very exciting to have the meeting in New Orleans this year. We had uh, more than 1,100 people come into town, and I think that's the biggest gathering we've ever had. Um, Our next one is going to be in uh, 2011 in uh, the Bay Area in California. So we're hoping for another big, fun, exciting gathering. Um, I, I think one of the things I love most about our annual meeting is it's a great chance to connect with people all around the country who are doing similar work. And it's such an energizing meeting and um, really a great time to pull together people actually doing a lot of the work in the field together and have some great conversations about policy and how what we're trying to do really works with or hopefully in fewer circumstances against what they're they're trying to do out there. And we had a policy meeting in October at the in, in New Orleans and I just find it a really great way to get feedback from people out there, as I mentioned again, doing the real work and and helping us focus on align where we should focus on over the coming year. So I think some of the things we've heard that we will be focusing on and people can look to see more from us are really a lot of a lot of work around 
access to healthy food in, in general, looking at so-called food deserts and how we can really ensure that all people have access to quality, affordable, and culturally appropriate food. Another one looking at increasing the availability of, of healthy food options for people who are participating in federal nutrition programs such as SNAP and the Women, Infants, Children program and other federal feeding programs where that's a possibility. So, so those are some of the big areas where I think we will really be focusing a lot of attention on in the coming year. And I just want to let our listeners know that don't let that word policy scare you. In a democracy, it's all about setting the laws by the people, for the people, and everyone is welcome to attend the Community Food Security Coalition meetings and learn more about the policies that dictate the kinds of foods we all have on our tables. So I agree with you, Megan. I I think those meetings are some of the most important because they dispel myths that many people might have about people who need these programs to survive. I want to thank you very much for your work. Is there anything you want to leave our listeners with in the last minute? I think I would just reiterate what you said and, and please, you know, tune into our newsletter and our website and we are always offering ways for you to take action and it absolutely is about you having a say in our food. That's terrific. Megan, thank you again for your work in policy. We've been speaking with Megan Lott. She has a master's in public health. She's a registered dietitian, and she's the associate policy director for the Community Food Security Coalition. She's based in Washington, D.C. We'll make sure we have a link to the Community Food Security Coalition for more information. I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you, listeners, and thank you, Megan. Thank you.